called me from the grave you gave me a real love i thank you jesus you washed my sins away now i am living like i'm forgiven you came and set me free that's what your mercy did for me I can't contain my praise Cause I know that I've been saved Lord, you found me, you healed me You called me from the grave You gave me a real love I thank you, Jesus You washed my sins away Oh, now I'm living like I'm forgiven you came and set me free. Yes, that's what your mercy did for me. Every morning, mercy will restore me. I will proclaim. Even if the world may sins away now i'm living like i'm forgiven you came and set me free that's what your mercy did for me yeah that's what your mercy did for me oh yeah that's what your mercy did for me Well, good morning, everyone. Welcome to Worship at Fusion this morning. We're so glad that you're joining us in person as well as online. Welcome. And at this time, I invite you to stand and extend the peace of Christ to one another. As we gather this morning, hear the word of the Lord from Psalm 7. I will give thanks to the Lord because of his righteousness and will sing praise to the name of the Lord Most High. Amen. You came from heaven Acquainted with our sorrow To train the debt we owe Your suffering for our freedom 
Christ, it was my death you died. I am raised to life. Hallelujah, the Lamb of God. My name upon your heart. My shame upon your shoulders. The power of sin undone. The cross for my salvation. Die for our redemption. 
resurrection Whose resurrection means I'll rise There isn't time enough to sing of all you've done But I have eternity to try With a thousand hallelujahs we magnify your name You alone deserve the glory honor and the praise Lord Jesus this song is forever yours a thousand hallelujahs and a thousand time where the kiddos who are going to children's ministry this morning, I think there's through third grade this morning, if you are ready to head down, you can meet Miss Becky and Mandy over here by the doors, this direction. If you have kiddos that are staying in the room today, I just want to remind you that there are binders out in this entryway that have activities for those kiddos as well, so feel free to grab those. And we will get ready to bless our kids as they head down to children's ministry. You guys have lots of kiddos over here. It's so awesome to see. All right, guys, are we ready? Okay. Adults, if you'll join me, the Lord be with you. Have fun, guys. And um, I was just asked a couple moments ago to uh, and let you guys know that um, the women's ministry walk today has been canceled. So if you were planning to attend that, it is not happening today. Um, so 
with that, let me get my Bible open here a moment and my glasses on so I can see my Bible and we'll pray. Okay, please join me in prayer. Hear these words from Psalm 145. I will exalt you, my God, the King. I will praise your name forever and ever. Every day I will praise you and extol your name forever and ever. Great is the Lord and most worthy of praise. His greatness no one can fathom. One generation commends your works to another. They tell of your mighty acts. They speak of the glorious splendor of your majesty. And I will meditate on your wonderful works. They tell of the power of your awesome works. And I will proclaim your great deeds. They celebrate your abundant goodness and joyfully sing of your righteousness. The Lord is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and rich in love. The Lord is good to all. He has compassion on all he has made. All of your works praise you, Lord. Your faithful people extol you. They tell of the glory of your kingdom and speak of your might, so that all people may know of your mighty acts and the glorious splendor of your kingdom. Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and your dominion endures through all generations. Our Father in heaven, how majestic you are. We rejoice in you as our Savior. When we consider all that you have done for us, it is incredible. We are amazed by all that you have established for your children. You are a God of all-encompassing love, a God of compassion, a God of grace, a God of wisdom, a God of encouragement. Hallowed be your name. God of goodness and mercy, you are our help and strength in all times of our lives. We know that we can offer you our concerns. There are so many in our community who are sick right now, Lord, who are fighting and figuring out new diagnoses, those who are grieving loss, those who are trying to handle rising costs of living, others who are navigating troubled relationships, and those who are suffering in quiet, things that are unknown to us. Father, give them your love when they need to be loved. Lift them up and support them when they need to be supported. Comfort when they need to be comforted. Encourage those who are brokenhearted. Put us in the right place at the right time to be your hands and feet. Be with those who are enduring hostility and war. Father, we pray for peace in the world. Let anger and hostility give way to harmony and justice in a world torn by conflict. Oh God, you've created the church, created us to be in community together, and entrusted us with the task of carrying out the work of your kingdom. Through your Holy Spirit, open our minds to your wisdom and our hearts to your love. Guide us to hear your word, the message that has been laid out specifically for us today. We ask a special blessing on JB this morning as he delivers your message. Guide his words so he speaks only what you want us to hear. We pray all of these things in your precious and holy name. Amen. Well, thank you, Dee. And good morning, Fusion. 
Good morning, good morning. It, uh, it's August. I, I see some dirty looks out there. Like, don't remind us. For some of you, it's a yay. For some, boo. How many are excited about August? Some excited about school? Some, yeah, yeah, we got some of those. We're a mixed bag, but we're all one in Christ. So that's, we all belong, right? It's hard to believe, actually, that summer is approaching its end. And I don't know for you, but like when I was a kid, like August like kind of marked that for me. Uh, but West Michigan has its beauty in all the seasons, amen. But uh, as we've been living again in Holland for the last over a year, summer has its unique beauty. Can I get an amen? I don't know. Summer's pretty special in Holland. Hey, uh, Dee mentioned the, the women's ministry walk. Just another kind of heads up of what's coming ahead. Uh, mark your calendars for the end of the month, the end of August. We've uh, recruited some, uh, some people for our next potluck. And uh, so potluck, bring some sides, uh, but the main course is going to be some barbecue, some brisket, some pulled pork. So you're going to want to just circle August 28th. Come. If you can bring a, a dish to pass, sides, great. If you can't, just come anyway. Be prepared to eat some good food. You ready for that? There's some good things about August. Absolutely. Anyway, we're continuing to work our way through our summer series, Everyday Wisdom. As you know, or maybe are aware of, we've primarily been camped out in the book of Proverbs. Uh, but if you remember last week, we looked at one of the other scriptures that come from the wisdom literature in the Bible, the book of Job. And, uh, and this week, because of some kind of rearranging, because we had church was canceled because of a power outage a couple weeks ago, uh, we are going to take on another whole book today, the book of Ecclesiastes. Yay, Ecclesiastes, anyone? Uh, Two books, Job and Ecclesiastes, as we've mentioned throughout this series, that kind of offer another voice to the voice, prominent voice in the book of Proverbs, to say that that, that formula in Proverbs that we talked about last week, that you, know, you, you, you fear the Lord, you do wise things, good things tend to happen. Ecclesiastes and Job both say, well, not always. Right? Ecclesiastes and Job remind us that, that those words in, in Proverbs are not promises, uh, they're not guarantees, they're probabilities. Things tend to go better if we follow the wisdom. Um, and so these are important, really important works of wisdom. Again, we're going to try to capture the essence of an entire book. Hello? Okay, I just got cut off for a second. Uh, in one Sunday, and so again, we're going to lean into the efforts and scholarship of the Bible Project Broken record, check them out. They're, they're incredible, the work that they do. Um, but again, like many of the wisdom books, there's not like a linear line of thought through the book of Ecclesiastes. Again, it's more like a, like a tapestry of reflections and poems, also some proverbs in there, and it's all framed. Uh, you'll notice on the poster that, 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 that banner right below Ecclesiastes, it's all framed by the first word that the teacher says and the last word that the teacher says, and it's this, hevel, hevel. And we'll talk about what hevel means. Everything is utterly hevel. That's the framework for the book of Ecclesiastes. So a real uplifting book. But anyway, it's an important word. Uh, we, again, we ho hope to touch on a lot of these ideas contained in the book. It's a lot, and so we're just going to jump right in. And to jump into the book of Ecclesiastes, we're just going to start right at the beginning. Ecclesiastes chapter 1, reading the first 14 verses. And if you're willing, if you're able, as our custom here, we stand uh, to hear the word of the Lord. A reminder that it is the Spirit who's speaking to us through God's word this morning. Ecclesiastes 1, starting with verse 1. The words of the teacher, son of David, king in Jerusalem. And here are his words. 
Meaningless, meaningless, this is the word hevel, says the teacher. Utterly meaningless. Everything is meaningless. What do people gain from all their labors at which they toil under the sun? Generations come and generations go, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun sets and hurries back to where it rises. The wind blows to the south and turns to the north. Round and round it goes, ever returning on its course. All streams flow into the sea, yet the sea is never full. To the place the streams come from, there they return again. All things are wearisome, more than one can say. The eye never has enough of seeing, nor the ear its fill of hearing. What has been will be again. What has been done will be done again. There is nothing new under the sun. Is there anything of which one can say, look, this is something new? It was here already, long ago. It was here before our time. No one remembers the former generations, and even those yet to come will not be remembered by those who follow them. I, the teacher, was king over Israel and Jerusalem. I applied my mind to study and to explore by wisdom all that is done under the heavens. What a heavy burden God has laid on mankind. I have seen all the things that were done under the sun. All of them are meaningless, a chasing after the wind. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may have a seat. Join me in a word of prayer. Lord God, we, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this voice in your word. A voice that reflects honest wrestling and questioning and wondering. Lord, may your spirit uh, open our hearts um, to ask the questions that need to be asked, but Lord, to find our comfort, our hope, and our rest solely in you, our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ, and it's in your name that we pray all these things. Amen and amen. Uh, I, don't, I don't think it's a secret anymore um, at this point, uh, over a year in, uh, but as far as my sports allegiances go, you know my sports allegiances. Uh, for those who don't know, uh, just a little background, I grew up in the beautiful state of Wisconsin. Yeah, that, that land on the other side of the lake, that land where the sun rises over the waters instead of sets, that land where we, we eat cheese a lot. But cheese is more than just a food. Cheese is, is actually uh, a, a, a master's degree at the University of Wisconsin. Did you know that? You can get your master's degree in cheese making. All that's to say is uh, that makes me a, a Packers fan. Okay, so you can boo, you know, whatever. We're one in Christ, remember? Okay, I'm a Packers fan. And uh, anyway, just as a Packers fan, I, I, I follow the team pretty closely. And um, back in 2017, uh, ESPN the magazine released uh, an NFL preview edition uh, which contained this fascinating article about Packers quarterback Aaron Rodgers. The, the title of the article, and you can, you can search for it online, um, is, a, is an article by Mina Kimes, The Search for Aaron Rodgers. Uh, and a, a deep look at this, his thinking and his, his thoughts and his beliefs and all these things. But anyway, what I, what I want to draw your attention to is at the beginning of that article, Mina Kimes does a brilliant job just retelling Rogers' experience in the moments after winning Super Bowl 45. If you don't remember the game, I remember it 
quite well. Uh, the, the, the Packers defeated the Steelers 31-25. Uh, and so there was all of this celebration afterward. It was in Dallas, Texas. Uh, there was like cold weather. There's all these details I remember. But anyway, they won the Super Bowl. The confetti flew, right? The, the trophy was handed out. Champagne was poured all over the place. There was this celebration. The Packers were world champions. And not only that, but, but it was kind of Aaron Rodgers' coming out party. Uh, Aaron Rodgers had like an all-time MVP performance, like three touchdowns, no interceptions, over 300 yards passing. And if you're a Packers fan, you're like, oh man, he could have had so much more if people caught the ball. Anyway, that's my own thing. That's my own issue. But anyway, this, this is like the culminating moment of Aaron Rodgers' young career at the time. And, and, and Mina Kimes retells this moment when the team is boarding on the bus, leaving the stadium. They have the Lombardi Trophy, this, this beautiful piece of you know, sterling silver in there. And they're passing it around the bus and everyone's trying to get a, their hands on the trophy and they're celebrating and they're whooping and hollering. And suddenly Aaron Rodgers shares with Mina Kimes that in this moment he gets contemplative. And begins thinking, and, and this, is, this is what she writes. She, she tells it better than I could summarize it. She writes this, as he reflected on the sacrifices and the slights uh, previously in his career, he wondered whether it was all worth it. And then he felt something unexpected. Not regret or fulfillment about a different sensation, like a space had opened inside of him. He thought about life and football and everything he had vested in his sport and a jarring realization sprang into his mind. I hope I don't just do this. Moments after winning the Super Bowl, moments after reaching the pinnacle of his career, Aaron Rodgers thinks this. Is this it? Is this all there is to life? Now the article will go on to explore his journey, his, his search for meaning and significance, uh, how he began to question some of the beliefs that he learned as a child. And if you've heard any news this week, he's still searching in my humble opinion. He's still searching for meaning and purpose, like many of us. But in some ways, it's these kinds of existential questions that the book of Ecclesiastes kind of helps us wrestle with. Where do we find meaning? What is, what is the purpose of life? And, and, the, and the book comes at it, Ecclesiastes comes at it in a very specific way by questioning absolutely everything. So now let's jump into the book of Ecclesiastes, but before we do, just a couple of, of basics about the book of Ecclesiastes. Quickly, it's important to recognize a couple of things about this important and powerful work. First, know who's speaking in the book of Ecclesiastes because there's two voices. I shouldn't hold up two fingers, just one, two hands, right? There's two voices speaking, there's, and as well as, here's the other thing we should hold on to, is that the book of Ecclesiastes is part of a larger context, Right, throughout this series, we've talked about this is, this is part of the wisdom literature um, and it's also part of the scriptures, the Holy Bible, our sacred text. So let's begin by talking about just the two voices very quickly. There's the author who, who, who writes and uh, com compiles this book and there's the teacher. The vast majority of the book comes from the voice of the teacher, but notice there's another voice present. We heard it in verse one. Uh, there's this author who introduces us to the teacher 
Uh, but the author also then offers a conclusion with some commentary at the end of the book. And that conclusion is very important in chapter 12, verses 9 through 14. More on that in a little bit. The teacher, though, let's talk a little bit about the teacher. The teacher is the vast, the primary voice in the book of Ecclesiastes. Teacher in Hebrew is the word koheleth. And so you maybe have heard that word koheleth, which, which literally means collector or um, compiler. So like compiler of, of words or sentences or people. So someone who gathers people or compiles words and sentences, you can see where teacher is a, is a really good translation. Uh, so the teacher. But we're also told about the teacher that, that he is a son of David a king over Jerusalem, so most presume that that means Solomon, but there's also some, some problems a little bit with Solomon being the teacher. Maybe it's another son. Maybe it's just from the tradition of Solomon, but either way, the teacher, if, as you read the book of Ecclesiastes, is a man who's lived a long life, so he's lived many years. He's, he's old, right? He's of old age. He's aged, and, and that experience of life has, has made him jaded in many ways. So you could say he's, I mean, he is. He's, he's cynical. So he's kind of this, like, I don't want to say grumpy old man, but he's kind of just this aged cynic who's also filled with all kinds of wisdom. And you're, you're going to hear that as we continue to dive in this book. So just think of this kind of aged uh, cynic, but man of wisdom who's lived many years and has seen the brokenness of the world. The second thing that is important to recognize is that Ecclesiastes is part of a, a much larger context, right? Ecclesiastes is not intended to be read in a vacuum. What I mean by that is, is we shouldn't just read Ecclesiastes all alone by itself. We have to recognize that Ecclesiastes is a book part of a larger work. It's part of the wisdom literature. So as we've been talking about this summer, we, we read Proverbs with Ecclesiastes and vice versa. We should read Ecclesiastes with the wisdom of Proverbs and with Job as other voices, part of wisdom literature. But also to recognize that Ecclesiastes is part of our holy scriptures, it's part of the full witness of the scriptures. And as Christ followers who have not just what we call the Old Testament, the Hebrew Bible, we have the New Testament, what we call the New Testament, the Gospels of Jesus. We have the revelation about who Jesus is and how that has completely changed the course of history forever. We need to keep that in mind. Ecclesiastes is 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 an important voice, a powerful voice, an honest and wise voice, but Ecclesiastes isn't the only voice. Are you with me? It's not the only voice. It's only one voice in the scriptures, and it's beautiful that it's there. Don't get me wrong. But here's, here's the little word I want to just give right at the beginning. As, as we begin to dive deeper into Ecclesiastes, who's questioning things, who's cynical, hold on to Jesus. Okay, because... Uh, as you question things and if you follow some of the teacher's train of thought, it can lead us to some pretty dark places. So just hold on to Jesus. Hold on to that gospel perspective and we're gonna end there. So just, that's my little word. You with me? We're still here, okay. So now before we get too deep into the work itself, we need to understand this word that's used throughout the book of Ecclesiastes. So a little word study. This word that's translated here, chapter one, verse two, and verse 14, meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher, utterly meaningless, everything is meaningless. I've seen all the things that are done under the sun, all of them are meaningless, a chasing after the wind. This word, uh, translated in the NIV, meaningless, is used over 30 times in the book of Ecclesiastes alone, by far than, more than any other book. 
The NIV translates this word meaningless, while other English translations, including the original King James, translates the word vanity. And I would say that both of those words have, are a little problematic uh, because if you think about meaningless, what's the primary meaning of the word meaningless? That's it, whatever that means, yeah. Uh, void of, of meaning, right? Meaningless, just void of meaning or void of purpose. That's not really what the word hevel means. Uh, the other word, which I think is a little better, vanity, uh, some of that has been lost in time because what, what the King James was talking about when, it, when King James was translated vanity is not what we typically think of. When we hear the word vanity in our modern context, what do we think of? Like, like consumed with self, right? Like I'm, I'm vain, you know, I'm consumed with myself. That's not really quite the meaning of hevel. Uh, the other, the other uh, meaning of the word vanity, it's in your bathroom, it holds a sink, Right? That's not it either, okay, let's just be clear. That's not the meaning as well. Um, but the word is hevel. And, and he, you can say that with me, hevel uh, or hebel, you, uh, both of those work. It, it, it's actually a word picture. Hevel is, 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 is a word that means smoke or vapor or, or mist. Um, that's the literal meaning of the word hevel or hebel. And it's a word picture, right? And so the, the, the Hebrew, the, right, the teacher is using this word picture to help us understand something. Think about smoke for a moment. Um, smoke is, is here and kind of floating in one moment, but in the next moment it can kind of just dissipate and be gone. Same with mist or fog. Uh, smoke is something you, you can see with your eyes, but the picture there, the moment you try to grab onto it with your hands, you can't, right? So it's, it's, it's fleeting, if you will. Um, it's temporary, the teacher then offers an, another word picture, and that's the picture on the right there. And this phrase is used about a half dozen times in, in the book of Ecclesiastes, a chasing after the wind. So just think about, I mean, that picture kind of captures it, right? Chasing after something that you're never gonna catch, that you can never actually grab onto. It's another, it's another word picture. It's, it's a futile effort. It's, it's, it's even paradoxical or an enigma, Right? It cannot, it, it, you just can't make sense of it. You can't, you can't grasp it. It's hard to understand. These are all things that capture this idea of hevel. And in that sense, the older, the original definition of vanity when the King James was translated probably gets closest to this original meaning. Uh, vanity in that sense is like when we use the word vain. Um, the, the, the efforts of the rescuers were made in vain, Right? That kind of vanity, like they're, they're futile, you know, it didn't, it, didn't, it didn't come to fruition. So when you read meaningless in the, in the NIV, think hevel, think smoke, think vapor, think mist, think futile, temporary, hard to, to grasp, hard to wrap our minds around, hard to understand, paradigm, okay? Are you with me? So there's a lot in that one word, hevel, but I think that's important to keep in mind. Now, Let's jump into the book of Ecclesiastes. Finally, we're getting there. Okay, let's jump into the teacher's teaching. And um, if, we were, if we were to put a word around, what is, what is the teacher doing with all of these questions and calling everything hevel or meaningless or vanity uh, would be a word we would use today, deconstruction. Okay, deconstruction. Now, take a little deep breath because I think I know that this word has taken on some meaning today in the modern day, along with some heaviness, inappropriately so. 
And so because of that reason, I thought about using like a different word that was kind of less packed. Uh, but instead, I thought it would be good to actually talk about this word that's kind of out there more. Maybe you, ha- maybe you haven't heard it, but I've been hearing it a lot, deconstruction. Deconstructing in modern circles has come to mean the journey of questioning, uh, often dis, 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 um, dismantling or taking down old paradigms and worldviews that we no longer believe. Most often in our modern context, it has to do with religious paradigms. Most often, most recently, it has to do with Christian paradigms. This is why we're kind of a little nervous about it because that journey has led some uh, to completely abandon their faith. Um, But you have to know that that's not necessarily the meaning of deconstruction and that's not necessarily the automatic end result or the intent of deconstruction. Sometimes there are things that we have been taught that need to be questioned and then deconstructed. In fact, as reformers, right, Protestants, we believe this, right? Without this act of kind of questioning old paradigms, we wouldn't have had a reformation, right? A Protestant reformation 500 years ago. Or or here's another example of like positive kind of deconstruction. Uh, I remember being a kid and, and thinking, where I received this, I'm not sure, but just remember thinking like, I had to like get my, get my act together a little bit before I could hear from God, Anyone else have that? You don't have to raise your hand. But like I had, I had to get some of my sins figured out. I had, to, I had to become like in a right place and then I could go to Jesus and then I could hear clearly what Jesus had to say to me. Well, that's the exact opposite of what I need to do, right? I need to go to Jesus in my brokenness so that he can kind of help sort it out for me, right? And so that paradigm needed to be kind of deconstructed and I had to embrace a new vision of this gospel of grace. Uh, Pastor Bill said I could share this, but if you've listened to Pastor Bill uh, preach, he's talked about his kind of renaissance and revelation about the gospel of God's grace and that had to like deconstruct some of these ideas of works righteousness, right? And the gospel, like, so there's, there's some good uses of this word and this practice of deconstruction. But deconstruction is simply calling into question assumptions, paradigms, beliefs on which we build our lives, dismantling them. And and the proper hope is that we dismantle those those broken things so that we can build our lives into something better and more substantial and good, right? And so that is the the the, the, the better understanding, or not better, but the, the best understanding, the best practice of deconstruction. But here's the thing, we get to the teacher and, and we start reading what these, you know, 11 chapters, 12 chapters of Ecclesiastes, and the teacher just, he just does this to everything. I mean, he is this kind of cynical old man who's lived a long life, and yes, he brings this wisdom, but he, he just sees how everything can be deconstructed. And he uses three primary realities or truths to kind of deconstruct everything in this world under the sun. That's the phrase, everything in this world, in this world that we live under the sun. It's kind of like his ammunition or his wrecking ball for deconstruction. Three realities, death, time, and chance. Death, time, and chance show how everything is simply hevel, like smoke, like a mist, like it's fleeting, it's hard to grasp. Our passage we read this morning is the first example, the march of time, 
right? It, it, it evens everything out. What do, I, what do people gain from all their labors at which they toil under the sun? He says, generation come and generations go, but the earth remains forever. The earth, the world, from the teacher's perspective, is this constant that does not change, but generations, people are like a flash in time. Verse 11, no one remembers the former generations. Not even those yet to come will be remembered by those who follow them. You see how this just questions everything. Time, our lives are but a flash in time and in time we will all be forgotten. So what is the point? Time. The second one, death. Throughout the book, uh, the, the teacher returns to this idea of death, the great equalizer. No matter who we are, we all die. Whether we're wise or foolish, whether we're rich or poor, we all die. In chapter three, verses 18 through 21, he begins to compare us to the animals. Like, we, we share the same fate as the animals. As one dies, so the other dies. Everything is meaningless. All go to the same place. All come from the dust, and to the dust they return. Death comes for us all. Can you hear the cynicism? Are you holding on to Jesus, right? Hold on to Jesus. We are all gonna die, and so for the teacher, what is the point? The third thing he uses, chance. Less prevalent maybe than the first two, uh, but it's there. The teacher draws on his experience of, of life's seeming randomness or chance, that there's no guarantee that your hard work will actually pay off for your own benefit. Uh, chapter 9, verse 11, I have seen something else under the sun. The race is not to the swift or the battle to the strong, nor does food come to the wise or wealth to the brilliant, you hear what he's doing, or favor to the learned, but time and chance happen to them all. There's no guarantees. You can do all the right things and yet tragedy could strike. Again, one voice, an important voice, but without the other voices of scripture and the voice of Jesus Christ, the gospel, you can see how this could lead us to some pretty dark places. These are the kind of questions, these are the kind of realities that bring a Super Bowl MVP to question if there's anything else after winning the Super Bowl, of all things. Hours later, hold on to Jesus, though. We hold on to Jesus, we listen for Jesus' voice. Now, the teacher then uses these three realities to deconstruct everything. Let's take a look at what the teacher deconstructs. Now, the deconstruction of everything. Here's the twist of modern irony, and I just find this fascinating. Um, but I was saying, like, deconstruction kind of used today is, is, is oftentimes deconstructing religious systems, kind of the religious systems of our youth, or, and, and sometimes tragically, right, uh, we see people abandoning their faith altogether. And what are they replacing the, the religion of their faith with? They're replacing it with the religion and the pursuits of this world, right? That this is the path that the world, the secular world tells us is the path to the good life. Well, guess what the teacher deconstructs straight to the ground? The secular world vision of the good life. The first thing we'll talk about, the, the, the teacher deconstructs worldly pursuits, wealth, career, status,
pleasure. Now, we don't have time to go into each of those in detail and point to where all they are from, but let's kind of split it up into two kind of categories. The first category, wealth, career, or in the book of Ecclesiastes, talking about toil or work. Status, honor in the Old Testament would be the parallel. So many, of the, the, so many, so many in our world are, 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 are working jobs that they despise in order to make enough money to be able to afford not to work any longer. Right, that's the dream, like retirement. Uh, everybody's working for retirement so often. That's kind of the story. Like, I'm in this job. I'm just, I just got to put up with it for five more years, and then I can retire, and, and then I can do what I want. That's the dream. That's kind of the American dream, right, to store up enough for retirement. For others of us, you know, for some, they, we like our jobs, right? And so the other temptation is, is to pursue advancement, and status and honor. And so we want to keep working our way up the, the corporate ladder, if you will. I mean, right, Aaron Rodgers, Super Bowl winning quarterback, right? That's kind of the height, status. And here's, here's, what, here's what the teacher writes. So my heart began to despair over all the toilsome labor under the sun for a person may labor with wisdom, knowledge, and skill and they must leave all they own to another who has not toiled for it. You can work your whole life and never have time to enjoy it and at the end of your life you just leave it to someone who didn't do anything to deserve it. This too is meaningless. A great misfortune. Verse 22, what do, people, what do people get for all the toil and anxious striving with which they labor under the sun? Here's a convicting word. All their days of uh, their work is grief and pain. Even at night their minds do not rest. This too is meaningless. We expend all of our energy working and working and it creates all this tension and stress and anxiety and we're losing sleep over it. Can our work, can our career, can wealth actually provide what the world promises it will provide? Now we can, there's a lot of wisdom in this, right? The teacher wisely points out for many, we work so hard we can't enjoy it. The work brings anxiety, grief, and pain. This, the teacher says, is hevel. It's like a mist, it's like smoke, it's futile, it's hard to grasp, it's hard to understand. It's, it's like smoke, it's a paradox. Wealth, career, status. Let's talk about the second, pleasure. Now this, right, in our modern world, this, this is where it's at. We all wanna be happy Right, pleasure or happiness, this is the goal. This is our common pursuit. Everybody working, not for a retirement, but everybody working for the weekend, right? Or vacation, right? Where we're working so that we can enjoy certain pieces of life. Guilty. You know, we just had this beautiful trip. I was like so looking forward to this amazing trip to Hawaii, and it was great. But at the end of it all, does it really supply satisfaction, contentment. Here's what, here's what the teacher writes. I denied myself nothing my eyes desired, right? I denied myself nothing. I refused my heart no pleasure. Yet when I surveyed all that my hands had done and what I had toiled to achieve, everything was meaningless, a chasing after the wind. And here's the key. Nothing was gained under the sun. This pursuit of pleasure, of, of just happiness as this idea. What, what is gained? What is, what, is, what is gained at the end of that road? Pursuit of pleasure produces nothing of substance. It's all hevel, it's fleeting, it's futile. If, there's that kind of vacation letdown, right? Vacation's over, like, okay. Like, did that, did that complete my life? No, right? After the weekend comes Monday, right? So, uh, 
There's, there's some cultural commentary. There's some wisdom in the teacher's words. The teacher is deconstructing much of what our culture says is the path to the good life and points out what I think Aaron Rodgers discovered on that bus a Super Bowl evening. That these things like status and wealth and success and pleasure might feel good for a while, but they cannot bring meaning or significance. They come up short in fulfilling what we need. It's purpose. But the teacher doesn't stop there. And here's where the teacher leads to kind of a dark place. The teacher then also begins to kind of deconstruct religious pursuits, right? Saying that wisdom is, is no guarantee. Throughout the book, the teacher acknowledges, throughout the book, let me be clear, the teacher acknowledges that wisdom is better than folly, right? That, that following, fearing the Lord is good. He, he talks about the, that it's wise to fear the Lord, chapter three, chapter five. But he also acknowledges that living wisely and fearing the Lord is no guarantee to happiness or success in this life under the sun. Verse two, verses 12 and following. Then I turned my thoughts to consider wisdom and also madness and folly. Verse 13, I saw that wisdom is better than folly. Again, it's better than folly. Just as light is better than darkness, the wise have eyes in their heads while the fool walks in darkness. It's an image right there. But here, but I came to realize that the same fate overtakes them both. And so I hated life because the work that is done under the sun was grievous to me. All of it's meaningless, a chasing after the wind. Or in Ecclesiastes chapter 8, verse 14, there's something else meaningless that occurs on earth. The righteous who get what the wicked deserve and the wicked who get what the righteous deserve, this too, I say, is meaningless. Whoa, right? Death, time, chance, Wisdom is, is no guarantee of success or happiness. Now when we're reading Proverbs, that's an important voice. But when we're in the midst of Ecclesiastes, it's, it's dark. It can lead to despair. It, it, is it still worth it if we all end up dead? Again, one voice, an important voice, but one voice in the, all the voices of Scripture, but it's a voice of cynicism. It's a voice of skepticism. And if you take that voice, if you take cynicism to its end, you kind of just get to the point of what's the point? But here's where the teacher kind of draws some conclusions, again, where there's some wisdom and trying to, trying, to, trying to be a little positive, like make the best of things. This is kind of where the end of this cynicism or deconstruction will lead. Logical conclusion is that life is all there is. So right here, I read verse 14, right? The righteous get what the wicked deserve. The wicked get what the righteous deserve. This too is meaningless. Right from there, he picks up, so I commend the enjoyment of life. If there's chance, if there's no guarantee, this is what I commend, just enjoy life because nothing is better for a person under the sun in this life to eat, drink, and be glad than joy will accompany them in their toil all the days of their life. Or elsewhere in Ecclesiastes 9, verse seven through 10, the logical conclusion. He says, go, eat food with gladness, drink your wine with a joyful heart for God has already approved what you do. Enjoy life with your 
life with your wife whom you love, all the days is meaningless in this life that God has given you under the sun, all your meaningless days. This too is your lot in life, your toilsome labor under the sun. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might for in the realm of the dead where you're going, there's neither working or planning nor knowledge nor wisdom. Whew. Gets to some pretty dark places, this cynicism, the end of the road for cynicism. If life, this life is heaven, it's smoke, it's vapor. So enjoy the little things. Just enjoy the sun. Enjoy the beautiful weather. Enjoy the moment. Enjoy good food and drink. Enjoy the people you love. Accept what comes. And there's some wisdom, right? There's some wisdom in that. It's a word about contentment. And we would value contentment. But there's a vast, there's a stark difference in the contentment that we preach as Christians and the contentment that's kind of spoken of here. A contentment that is kind of some fatalistic, kind of materialistic understanding of the world. I have a, I have a good friend who, who walked away from the faith. He's self-proclaimed atheist. And in his mind, he's like, hey, this is the one life I got, so I'm just gonna live it to the best. I'm just gonna enjoy it, Right? And in his mind, that, that, makes, that makes sense. And I guess if this is all there is, it's a great perspective if it's true. But for Christians, we understand that's not the full story. Can I get an amen? The full story is not just life under the sun. And our contentment comes from a much deeper and richer well of life that is Jesus Christ. Hold on to Jesus. We're getting there, Okay. But it's also important to recognize that this is not where the book of Ecclesiastes ends either. The book of Ecclesiastes does not simply end with this deconstructed, fatalistic approach and outlook on life. Instead, as I mentioned at the beginning, there is an author who compiled these teachings, these teachings of the teacher, and has the final word. Chapter 12, verses 9 through 14, offers some commentary. And it's a word on reconstruction. See, the potential problem with, with deconstruction is if we just keep deconstructing, it simply just becomes destruction, right? And we've torn the whole thing down to the ground and we got nothing left to build our lives upon, to guide our lives and we're left with kind of this point of despair and defeat and kind of fatalistic thoughts about life. That's the end of the road for the cynic and the skeptic but, and that's a hard and scary place to be. And, and, and maybe there's some that you know and love or maybe some here who've, who've kind of just are at that point and it's like, I would, just, I would just gently suggest this second option, that deconstruction is not the end, but there's reconstruction. There's rebuilding on something that's better, that's good, that it is of God. The teacher finishes and the author ends with this, this final word in the conclusion. And it's a word of caution, but it's also a word of counsel. Let's talk about first a word of caution. He writes this, starting in verse nine. Not only was the teacher wise, but he also imparted knowledge to the people. He pondered and searched out and set in order many proverbs. The teacher searched to find just the right words and what he wrote was upright and true. The words of the wise are like goads, they, they're collected sayings like firmly embedded nails given by one shepherd. We'll talk a little bit about what that means. But be warned, my son, here's the word of caution, be warned, my son, of anything in addition to them, of making many books there is no end, and much study wearies the body. 
What, what the author is saying is that the teacher has, has, is wise and has found just the right words, and these are important, good words. They're like goads, which is like a, a shepherd who sharpens the end of his staff, and you see the little picture there, who's poking the sheep, right? And so these words of wisdom are good because they kind of poke us, you know, and, and get us out of a rut or get us going in the right direction. They're, they're good in that sense, but he offers this warning. He cautions, don't take this too far. Don't, don't go on this road for too long because it leads to fatigue. It wearies the body of many books, right? It wearies the body. It leads to despair. It's good, but, there's, but, but stop at a certain point, right? Then the author has the final word, and, and it's a word of counsel. And hint, hint, uh, his final word is not eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. Uh, interestingly, it's a word of counsel. And go to the next slide. He says this. Now all that's been heard, verse 13, here is the conclusion of the matter. Fear God and keep his commandments. For this is the duty of all mankind. For God will bring every deed into judgment, or another translation would be justice, same word, including every hidden thing, whether it is good or evil. In a beautiful conclusion, the book, the author of Ecclesiastes who has assembled these teachings of the teacher actually simply affirms the primary message of the Proverbs. Fear God, obey his commands, or be wise. At the end of the day, after all of this questioning, at the end of the day, the best thing that you can do is fear the Lord and keep his commandments. The teachers challenged us, forced us to think deeply about many things, including the reality of life has no guarantees, time, death, money, chance. He's challenged all of these things. But at the end of the book, the author directs our hearts to the entirety, the whole of the scriptural witness that life under the sun, this life is not all there is. That, that, that there is a God who's overseeing this world and one day he will bring about judgment. And if you don't like that word, the same word is translated justice. That's kind of the more positive. But both are true. God will come and make all things right. The things that are out of order will be made and put in order. And we know this because we have this revelation of God's son, Jesus Christ. And he gives us a new perspective. Church of Jesus Christ for the disciple, the follower of Jesus, this is our new perspective. You know, we talk a lot about deconstruction today. And in many ways, deconstruction is necessary. We need to deconstruct all the things that are not of Jesus, right? All of those selfish pursuits that are void of meaning, that cannot bring us what the world promises, wealth and money and career and status and, and pleasure, they will not bring you what the world promises. We need to deconstruct that worldview. And even those religious systems that are in opposition to the gospel of God's grace in Jesus Christ, this core of the gospel, whether it's our own self-righteousness or our own uh, idolatry or syncretism, like those things need to be deconstructed. And even some of those good gifts that have become our ultimate, that have taken the place of God, we need to question those things as well to find that they are in their proper place. So we need to embrace, we need to deconstruct some of these things and at the end of the day, we embrace the cross of Jesus. 
We live sacrificial love. We live not for what is under the sun, but we live for the kingdom that is coming when Jesus Christ returns once again. We deconstruct so that we can reconstruct or build our lives, build our identity, build our purpose and our meaning on the rock and the foundation that is Jesus Christ. Can I get an amen to that? The one who died, the one who rose to life, and the one who will come back to bring justice and judgment and peace. It's on him that we stand. It's on him that we build our lives, and it's on him that we have hope. Let's close and be reminded of this gospel good news. Will you join me in prayer? Lord, we thank you for this book. We thank you for this honest voice in the scriptures. And Lord, we thank you that your word is, is real. And your word is, meets each of us where we are at on our journey. Whether, Lord, we're, we're, we're just amazed by your beauty and your glory, your psalms give us words of praise and adoration. Lord, whether we're, we're caught in the, in the midst of grief and sorrow, as we learned last week, Lord, your, your word gives us words to express that sorrow to you. And Lord, for those of us that we know and love who are, who are questioning things, and Lord, that can be a scary thing when people we love are questioning, and, but Lord, your word meets us in the midst of those questions as well. And it's all out of your love for us. You meet us where we're at so that you can bring us closer to you and your love. And so Lord, as, as, as we sing a song about Lord Jesus, you being our, our rock and our foundation. Lord, may, may these words remind us on which we build our lives. The solid rock, Jesus Christ, our Lord and our Savior and our friend. We pray all this in his precious name. Amen. Amen. I invite you to stand and worship with us. built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. On Christ the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. When darkness fills his lovely face, I rest on his unchanging grace. In every high and stormy gale, my anchor holds within the veil. Oh!
oath, his covenant, his blood. Support me in the whelming flood when all around my soul gives way. He then is all my hope and stay. On Christ the solid rock I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. All other ground is sinking sand. Oh, when He shall come with trumpet sound. extend your hands to receive the Lord's blessing. May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you now and forever. Amen. Go in peace. Your mercy did for me. 
what your mercy did for me. Oh, oh, oh. yeah, that's what your mercy did for me.